0: Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Welcome, welcome to Going in Circles Live. It's uh, a rainy Tuesday in South Florida. It's been rainy pretty much every day lately. But um, but we have a, uh, an interesting show for you today. And uh, we're going to start out with an author called, uh, named Peter Lee. Peter wrote a book about one of the great horses of, uh, of our time. A horse that, uh, that probably doesn't get quite his due. Um, because he, he lost in the third leg of the Triple Crown. And the Triple Crown is our big, um, it, it's, it's, you know, People realize that it's, it's the biggest thing that we have in this sport. And this was the pre-Breeders' Cup era. But a horse of all spectacular bid had um, a, what I would call an unparalleled four-year-old season. Where he just dominated. Um, unlike anything we see now, unlike anything we saw then. And he was really the last of, the 70s were an era of super horses. You had Secretariat, you had um, Seattle Slew, you had Affirmed and Alidar. You had Spectacular Bid, you had uh, Forgo. And it was kind of uh, unparalleled itself in, in that every year, every other year, there hadn't been a Triple Crown winner since Citation in 1955, I believe. So Secretariat kind of ended a long drought, and then seemingly every year you you had these great horses. You had, you had Ruffian. Um, it was just a spectacular era of um, just just. Uh, some of the greatest horses of our time. I mean the horses I named are probably in the top 15 or 20 of all time and they all ra- were born or raced in the 70s. And spectacular bid was the final horse of the 70s to really uh, show his stuff and um I think uh, we, we were kind of what spurred this on and one of the things i really wanted to do with these podcasts is to bring up horses like spectacular bid uh horses of the past that um are a little bit forgotten these days and to expose people uh who are new who are younger uh, to the great horses of the past um i wrote a, a, a little blog piece on um on all along uh last weekend about her amazing um, four-year-old fall campaign where she won four grade ones in 42 days in two continents and three different countries uh, which, which culminated with her wind up uh, being horse of the year of that in 1983 and spectacular bit is is another horse and um that uh I, I guess what spurred this on was racing twitter was debating uh about uh great horses the other day and um, Cigar was brought up as as one of the all time greats, and he, he certainly was a great horse. But um, Ghost Sapper's was, was name was thrown in uh, the hat, and you know, was Spectacular Bit, and it was almost like, oh well, Ghost Sapper and Spectacular Bit are heads and shoulders above these other ones. And I, <laughs> I kind of scoffed at the th- the fact that that Ghost Sapper would be put in the same. Category spectacular bid because he's not nearly the horse that spectacular bid was ever was not even close, not even close. But that's one of the things I think that podcasts can can do. Um, we have uh, a real issue with finding clear video of of a lot of the races of the past. And uh, there is plenty on YouTube, but a lot of them aren't really great quality. And uh, we're talking about horses in the '80s and the '90s too, and that they're not always easy to find um, video of. So, talking about it and, and having people, you know, describe what happened, and uh, I really want to try to get more of that done, and and uh, to start to cover more horses of the past that that really had done some great things and some some great horses that uh, achieved a lot and when you it'll help i believe the modern racing fan take things into perspective a little bit better and that often these days people want to believe that what they're seeing is something that no one's ever seen before it's a you know all-time great thing and and sometimes it, it is, it, it, it really is. There are things that happen, of course, that um, hadn't happened before. And there, there are, of course, still great horses. There's still great trainers. There's still great uh, jockeys. That, that's, there's no question about that. But when you talk about all-time greats, it's very, very difficult to compare modern horses to uh, horses of the past. And I'm not talking about Man of War or horses that raced uh, 100 years ago. And the funny thing about racing is, I was talking about this with Barry last night on the, the Monday Night Podcast, is when you watch a video of a horse that ran 30, 40 years ago, outside of the quality of the video, the the races, the, the on-track experience is really not that much different. Probably a little more pace in the old days than there is these days. Everybody seems to take a hold early and and uh even dirt races are are run a little bit more like turf races a lot of the times but um that's being kind of nitpicky and the actual on the field product is is pretty much uh the horse race is still a horse race and people talk about modernizing the sport and i don't see um I don't see how how you can possibly modernize a horse running in a circle as fast as they can. It's, there's just not much you can change. And I, I'd I'd like today to be a, a positive <laughs> a positive show. I don't want to go into um, some of the gory details about some of the um, items of the day, like the continuous debate on riding crops or whips or sticks or whatever you want to call them. And um, it seems like most things these days that people have already made up their, their they've made up their mind they've they've made uh, a decision on, on where they stand on it and it's it's going to be uh, something that we're going to bring up uh in a in a future show when uh i talked to ramon dominguez about coming on ramon was obviously a great jockey who, who had to retire prematurely because of a, of a, of a head injury but since he retired, he developed these the whips that most of the jockeys are using now, which are are really um, you know really safe whips. They're, they're they're they call them Nerf whips, and uh, compared to some of the things that were were used uh, before that, that they certainly are far um, less punishing but that's a, that's honestly is, is a debate for another day. And today we do want to talk about Spectacular Bid and his, uh, his entire career. And Peter Lee wrote a really great book called uh, Spectacular Bid, The Last Super Horse of the 20th Century. Um, and he, he really was, he he really was. And there was some great horses that followed him. Easy Goer and Sunday Silence were, were, were really good horses and, uh, Skip Away and, uh, Cigar were really good horses and, there was a lot of really good horses, but, um, he was the last horse to kind of transcended, um, had such, he, he was just so much better. Um, and Peter is going to join us in a, in a few minutes and, and talk about, uh, talk about spectacular bid and his, uh, his, um, his life and, uh, his racing record and, and, his trainer, which is uh, a man named Bud Delp, who was a successful trainer, uh, who was not, um, <laughs> he, he wasn't a, a, a kind, uh, a gentle kind of guy, he, he was kind of gruff, and he was kind of arrogant, and he he knew he had the best horse, and he was not afraid to to share that sentiment, and, and he turned a lot of people off, and, and honestly, I believe, and I'll, we'll talk to Peter about this, but I believe that spectacular bid was downgraded by some racing riders because of, um, his trainers, uh, gruffness and, uh, some of the tactics that he used late, late in his, his career. Um, some of the complaints made and some of the things that happened, uh, just his actual, you know, the race that was supposed to be his final race that didn't happen was there's some controversy involved there. And, and I believe that at that time it reflected poorly on the horse, unfortunately. And, uh, as time has passed, when you, you take a look at his accomplishments, they really stick out as, uh, And I I think another thing was that I I believe that the the riders, the turf riders of the time had gotten a little bit, um, a little spoiled in that there was, like I said earlier, so many great horses, so many great horses, that um, if you had pulled Spectacular Bid out of the era and and put him um, in the 90s or the 2000s, the there there would be there wouldn't be a need to do the show because there would be <laughs> there would be so much sentiment about how great he was that uh, we'd probably be sick of talking about him but um the 70s were, were such an uh, an unbelievable an unbelievable uh decade for racing that uh, it was hard for to, it was hard for the horses that followed to get that same um street cred that that you you would get when you look at a secretariat and then you look at a, um, uh, a, a forego. You look at a ruffian, you look at Seattle slew, you know, you look at the great, great races of, Validar and affirmed. And, uh, and, that, and and that's, that's kind of where, um, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to compare to those kind of, kind of great players it's like when you talk about michael jordan or lebron james there's lots of guys who've won mvps and there's lots of guys who have won championships but these are the these guys are are the best of the best they're not uh they're not just run-of-the-mill guys they're at the top of everyone's list and if they're not number one they're really close they're number two with a with an asterisk and uh and spectacular bid was was one of those horses and uh I really wanted to uh, to get a spotlight on him, and and honestly, I, I'd like feedback from people out there on horses that they might be interested in um, in hearing about. Um, Lore was a horse that was brought up to me that uh, might be a, an interesting topic, and, and he was a a horse that started out kind of a, a, as a, a triple crown type. Horse and he also, um, you know, Lore set a track record as a two year old on the dirt where going five ace on the Belmont dirt, uh, a track record that was broken by Kelly Kip. But Lore was a dirt horse and he had a, an unbelievable uh stretch battle with Devil is Due, uh, Dead Heat, and the Gotham, and he kind of reinvented himself. And uh, I think that uh, you know. Some One of the difficult things with talking about some of the older horses is that it's tough to find some you know, people that are, are still around that, that you know were on the inside. Um, I mean, Bud Delp is dead. Uh, Ronnie Franklin is dead. Willie Shoemaker, who's rode him, is dead. So they're, they've all passed away. So there, there's not um, – I, I don't have access to anyone – uh, that had, really had uh, the connection that was, was there. And I mean, this horse ran 40 years ago. So it's not as though, uh, um, it's not as though he was, he was really recent, but, uh, but any, any other horse that people have interest in, uh, certainly we would be glad to try to do the research and, and find out, uh, um, people who, who could come on. I would think a horse like Lore, Mike Smith would be a natural, of course, Shug and, and, uh, and that that uh, you know we'll probably do that maybe after the breeders cup when uh, when things kind of slow down uh, I think we have uh, Peter is Peter on the line Peter are you there yes hello hi Peter how are you
1: all right how are you doing
0: great welcome to the show thank you for joining us today
1: thank you it's a pleasure to be on
0: well I have to tell you this is how this kind of started. On Twitter last week, and this is this is how the world works nowadays. Things happen on social media, and it, it spills into the rest of our, our lives. There was a debate. Someone brought up Cigar and said Cigar was, you know, the greatest horse that ever lived. Kind of reminiscent of the, the Bud Delp quote of the greatest horse that ever looked through a bridle. And, of course, me being me, I couldn't help but but, but tell the person that, uh it, it went on a little bit and then you know ghost zapper's name was brought in there and, and I was describing it a little earlier <laughs> saying people kept like saying, Well, Ghost Zapper is spectacular bidder, head and shoulders over everybody else, and I kinda said, Well, let's hold off on putting Ghost Zapper in spectacular bids category because he's not. No matter what the sheets guys say, no matter what he's not. I said, Maybe you better re examine who and what spectacular bid was because Col was a really good horse but he was not spectacular bid
1: exactly and i and i knew i would get a little bit of flack probably for uh naming my book spectacular bid the last super horse of the 20th century and indeed i got some people who were saying well what about cigar and indeed cigar was a great horse um was he a super horse Well, a lot of people draw the line at Super Horse differently. There's obviously a difference between Secretariat and Country House, and you've got to draw the line as as to what a Super Horse would be. Uh, You know, when I did my research, I looked and and saw that Spectacular Bid was 10th on the Blood Horse's top 100 thoroughbreds of the 20th century. Cigar was 18th. Um, and in uh, the book A Century of Champions, John Randall and Tony Morris ranked Spectacular Bid ninth in the world and ranked Cigar thirty second. So those are just some just some uh, subjective viewpoints of some people who who happen to agree that the Cigar was a great horse, but maybe not in the same
0: league as Spectacular Bid. You know, I, I made a point that, um, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I believe horses are are of. Horses' racing careers sometimes are colored by the failure as stallions. And I think that uh, I made the point that I said, to be honest, I was there for both of these race these horses' careers, the entire one. I was in the paddock when Cigar ran his first race back on the dirt at at, at Aqueduct. And as a matter of fact, I bet against him that day, which was obviously a big mistake. Um <laughs> I was there for uh I saddled horses against that ran against Skipaway. I I I went all the way to Suffolk Downs one time to saddle a 60 to 1 shot for Alan Jerkins <laughs> that my my future ex-wife rode <laughs> that uh, basically was just the pace setter for Cigar and uh, formal or uh, excuse me uh, Skipaway and formal gold but I said I I be honest I think at his at his best Skipaway was a better horse than Cigar and you know we do have a matchup where those two ran against each other in the Jockey Club Gold Cup at Belmont Park and, and Skip Away beat Cigar. And I said, like, before you get start putting Cigar in the pantheon that exists um, from the, the Super Horses of the 70s, you know, we better make sure he's the best horse of the '90s because I'm not sure he's he's better than Skip Away. And and I said Formal Gold, unfortunately, was kind of an unfortunate horse. He just wasn't quite as sound as the other one, the other two. But uh, he he was he was right up there too. But um, I, I think your your description of Spectacular Bid being the last super horse of the 20th century is accurate because uh, you know you you look at Cigar's career and he had a whole lot of losing being done. Um, at the beginning of his career, and he didn't go out winning. and And I get yes, it's very difficult to compare horses to Secretariat because obviously he's Secretariat. But then you look at the record of Affirmed. You look at the record of Seattle Slough You look at uh, at, at the older horse record of, of, of Forgo, uh in, in the era before that, Kelso and um, you know Doctor Fager. And and those, those when you look at the records now. You you say to yourself, wow, these really were super horses. (laughs) um, And and I wrote a piece for my own website um, about Spectacular Bid's four-year-old season, just this four-year-old season. And at the end of it, you know, I went through kind of race by race and – Certainly not not to the degree of your, of your book where, where, which is which is a, a really good book. Uh, my dad bought it for me. He got it at the racing hall of fame. This is what my dad does. He buys the books, then he reads it, and then he gives it to me as a gift. which is kind of you know, my dad's pretty sharp, but uh you know at the end of it, I said, look, this is this is uh this was Spectacular Bid's four-year- old year. He was nine for nine. He set four track records. He set a world record. You know, you you look at the the, the comments in the the running lines um, easily. Drew clear, handy score, ridden out, ridden out, easy score, easily, ridden out, in hand, uh, from seven ace to a mile and a quarter, five tracks all over, you know, from the West Coast, East Coast, the Midwest, fast tracks, good tracks, sloppy tracks. He had a walkover. And then I said, that's a great, that's a great career. And that was only his four year old season. <laughs> you know, and Yeah. And,
1: uh, a that- lot of people forget that he actually had a twelve race winning streak uh that ran all the way to of course the Belmont. Um so he actually had two really good uh winning streaks. Of course the nine race winning streak, uh um, if you add uh his one victory as a three year old, he actually had a ten race winning streak. So, you know, you look at cigars sixteen wins and that's great, but uh you've got uh uh, two great streaks that spectacular bit had uh, that that'll that'll go down in history.
0: Hey, talk about um, his beginnings a little more. Uh, I, I didn't talk about that at all. Basically, you know that was uh, I just really kind of focused on that four year old season because I, I just don't have any. I, I mean, one of the my big like um, my big thing. One of the things I really complain about a lot of, about. In regards to racing, is the lack of um, information and the the, the information available pre nineteen ninety two is very is is so spotty, and it's just difficult to kind of uh, to look things up. I mean, you wind up having to you know Google things, and you wind up reading articles written in the uh, um, you know the the newspapers because I mean back then there was a lot of daily coverage of racing, but 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 spectacular. Bits' four year old it, year, it, to me, it's like unparalleled, and it, it's just uh, achievements and, and and just the true greatness he showed. But um, you know, he he kind of had relative humble beginnings. Um, he, he wasn't an expensive baby, and and uh, I think his stallion was a good stallion, but he wasn't considered like Blue Bud. So, uh, tell everybody about kind of you know his beginnings, where where he kind of started, where how they wound up. The Meyerhoffs wound up uh, acquiring him.
1: Well, he did have a rather humble beginning, actually, being uh, born in a in a mud puddle at the bottom of the hill. Um, the the farm were were not expecting uh, spectacular. The the dam to actually give birth, and then and uh, so he he did have a rather humble beginning. He was he was not a very pretty horse to look at at the beginning. His his, um, uh, forelegs stuck out a a little bit. His toe did and. and so the Meyerhoff bought him for a song. They were prepared to go up to fifty, sixty thousand dollars 60000 at the Kingland sale and um, got him for $37,000. Um, but Delp, the trainer of Spectacular Bid, um, handed over the ticket, and as he usually did with the Meyerhoff, said, well, here's your next champion. Uh, little did he know uh, what he had just bought for $37,000.
0: You know, I wonder how many times that line's been uttered at sales. <laughs> yeah, you just bought the next great horse. You just bought a champion, and and this time it, it actually was right.
1: Yeah, and and his his beginnings were were a little modest. He had won his first two races, and and. But Delp decided to, to put him in a, in a stakes uh, race, and that was, unfortunately, the Tyro Stakes, which was a mud bath uh, at, the, at the time. Um, and Spectacular Bit just kind of frolicked in the mud, jumped over mud puddles, and um, still managed to finish fourth. Um, But it wasn't really until the world's playground stakes where he just demolished the field um, and ran in just a superb race that everybody sort of perked up their ears and looked over and said, well... We've got ourselves a horse here, and um his two year old season was was good his three year old season was superb but his, as you said his four year old season was was perfect and, and uh and a lot of people have, have said that they've they haven't seen anything like it um he was twenty six for thirty um in his entire career which um only man of war and native dancer and i think colin uh out of the top twenty race horses of the twentieth century can beat in terms of winning percentage.
0: You know when you, when you go you go back and you look at um, at his pp's. Uh, the one thing that stands out to me about the tyro uh, was the first call. They have him eighth by sixteen lengths, which um, with a horse with his his speed, I, I I read a quote by Delp that he said that he could have been champion sprinter if that's what they wanted him to do. He had that much speed because. You know, interestingly enough, a, a lot of great horses are horses that that are up closer to the pace. And uh, you know, he he, he raced. At, I, I watched as many of the four year old races as I could, and I've seen him a bunch of them a lot of times. But uh, some of the races he actually kind of lagged in the beginning of the race, the first half mile. Yeah. And Bill Shoemaker kind of would just kind of let him settle and get his feet under him, and then he would make a big move down the backside, and that was kind of his his uh, his standard running. Style as a four-year-old, where he would run a a third quarter really fast into getting into position, and then on the final turn he would just start to wear the other horses down, and and then in the stretch he he just uh, they couldn't keep pace with him. But um, you know that that was the one thing that stuck out to me about about that race. Uh And of course, there's there's no video available of that race, but um, you know, being to think that he was sixteen lengths behind. In any race ever, at any time, is just kind of crazy. And like you said, he did rally to be fourth, and and uh, it was his his third start. But uh, you know, I, I'm, these days, the the biggest difference between now and back then, I think, would be after his second defeat when he uh, he got beat in the Dover at Delaware. There's no possible way that the owners. Would have let uh, Delp put Ronnie Franklin back on that horse. They they would have these days. Irad Ortiz would have been on that horse, and that would have been it. And there would have never been any more Ronnie Franklins, and, and, and history might have been a little different because uh, you know, reading your book, Delp did get fed up at one point and put George Velasquez on, and you know, I guess he he wrote, he wrote him in the champagne. And then he he didn't uh, he he didn't ride him so great in the uh, the the uh, the stake at um, uh, the Meadowlands that doesn't exist anymore the uh, the Young American um, right and supposedly you you had said in your book that uh, he had reached out for Lenny Goodman who had Steve Cawthon's book and Steve Cawthon of course would, had written firm the year before and to a uh, triple crown success and uh, that. Uh, you know uh, he he kind of didn't give him the what what Delp thought was the right respect and after he showed how good he was uh Goodman had called him to try to get on the horse and 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 Delp like was too stubborn to to put him on and and you know when you, when you go back and you look at the the race that he did lose in the Belmont which i mean think about think about where he would be ranked had he won that Belmont
1: yeah, and, and that's, unfortunately, the mark of a great horse nowadays. You know, you think American Pharaoh, you think Affirmed, and Seattle Flew. And uh, most people know horses by um, whether they've won the triple crown. And especially here, I live in Georgia, uh, people don't know who spectacular bid is simply because he didn't win the triple crown. And um, it's a shame because, you know, as you know, horses are like Arrogate, you know, there are plenty who don't even run in the triple crown races who are spectacular. Spectacular horses, pardon the pun. But um, going back to your, your your point about Ronnie Franklin, uh, there was a real love or hate relationship uh, with with uh, Buddy Delp and, and Ron Franklin. Um, uh, you know, there were several races, as you mentioned, where Buddy Delp just got fed up with with Franklin and the way he rode, and um, and you know, a lot of people point toward. Franklin's ride in the Belmont is the reason Spectacular Bid lost. Now, I make the point in the book that uh, the the injury, the the alleged safety pin, really was real and affected Spectacular Bid a lot more than, than people realize. But um, Franklin was very inexperienced. He had only been on horses for just a couple of years before he, he got the ride of his life and uh, um, had an up-and-down career with him, and finally... Um, uh, the Belmont, coupled with his uh, arrest at Disneyland um, uh, for cocaine, uh, finally ended uh, his his reign over spectacular bit, and they they went to Bill Shoemaker.
0: Yeah, and that uh, I mean, going to Bill Shoemaker is is uh, uh, when I was a, a, a kid, a young a young kid. Bill Shoemaker was like uh, he he was he was in that that pantheon of, of great riders. it was shoemaker and Lafitte pink and, and Cordero and uh, and that, that those were like the guys, you know, like they were, they were, they were just, you know, they're, they're almost like gods as jockeys. And, and, uh, I mean, you just wonder, um, you know, a guy like shoemaker was smart enough to take care of the horse and, and, uh, you know, one of the big differences we have in racing these days versus the old days is that um, the handicap races were a lot more important. And these days, they've they've eliminated a lot of handicaps. They've taken some of the, made some of the handicaps race weight for age, and and even um, even the handicaps that are left, very rarely are horses weighted um, on the scale that. Uh, spectacular bid was weighted as a four-year-old, and um, I know that um, that there was a controversy at the end of his four-year-old season regarding the Marlboro Cup. Um, not uh, it was the Mar- yeah, it's Marlboro Cup, where yes. it was still a handicap, and they wanted to put a hundred and thirty-six on him, which was a four-pound bump from the Haskell. I, you know what's interesting? I found out. It's kind of a sidebar was that the Haskell in nineteen eighty there was actually two Haskells. There was the Haskell for three year olds. There was one by a horse named uh Tim Tony the Tiger or something. The, I mean not not uh not Tim the Tiger, but uh not Tim the Tiger. Uh, not, not, Tim. No a, a, a not very famous horse. And then the <laughs> Armory Haskell handicap, which is what, what which is what uh Spectacular bid ran, won in uh Overglorious Song, the Great Mare. Um, there there was actually two Haskells <laughs> in nineteen eighty. And and at first I was thinking to myself, the Haskell's a three-year-old race. Did they open oh. it up? You know, how how could that be? But uh, apparently that uh, that uh, that was the last Haskell handicap. It was the last year that they ran it. Spectacular bid won the final armory uh Haskell handicap, which uh uh, which is kind of uh, an an odd kind of sidebar but uh he carried 132 in, in that uh in that race which which he won relatively easily and uh I guess Naira's, uh racing secretary thought that 136 was appropriate and uh and uh Del apparently did not agree
1: yeah and uh there was a lot of controversy over that and actually during the Woodward stakes uh when he was you know back in New York when he uh, had his walkover a lot of the fans booed because <laughs> they booed a horse in a walkover because uh he didn't race in the in the Marlboro um but uh later we found out that um uh that Bid's left um, ankle was swelling up a lot. And so uh, we see a trainer that was very, very cautious with this horse and was not going to let anything like uh, a a large amount of weight um, affect him in any way. Um, He did not run that much on the the Hollywood Park um, surface because it was too hard. And um, when it came down to the uh, Jockey Club Gold Cup um, in in his four-year-old season, he um, actually did X-rays and found some bone chips, and just said, "That's it. I'm not going to risk this horse anymore." So you had somebody who was who was watching out for bids, bids, best interest, and I I think that played a lot into it. Uh, Not so much the fear of him losing because uh, he was beating everybody. three, four, five links anyway. And, uh, I don't know that we would really would
0: have made a difference with the spectacular bit. Yeah, that's true. And, and I mean, I remember I I was young then, but I do remember that there was articles and there was talk about, uh, about Delp just not kind of being very liked and him being a kind of an outsider in, in New York is New York racing has always kind of had a little bit of an air of, of, uh, exclusiveness and he was uh, a decidedly an outsider and nobody there had a horse that could beat him. And I think, uh, uh-huh. the, the, you know, the, as time has passed, we look back at spectacular bid. We see the last race being the walkover and it's kind of a, a poetic ending to his career and that uh, he was the kind of the all-conquering hero that nobody had any interest in running against anymore. And uh, and I know that he, he had been actually entered in the Jockey Club Gold Cup and, and was scratched late in the morning that day because of that ankle. But uh, it's funny that that kind of has kind of faded into the background and, and it's not part of the... When people think about him nowadays, people don't think about that at all. It's it's kind of like the culmination of his career was was the walkover, which uh, which amazingly he he made it around there in, in, in two minutes and two two seconds, which an amazing time yeah. <laughs> for, yeah uh, for a for horse by himself for a workout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in between races, it's kind of a uh, uh, just, uh, but but to me it was it was kind of like. Uh, the the ultimate, they didn't have mic drops back then, but it would be kind of the ultimate mic drop in like, okay, I'm going out with a race <laughs> where nobody else could, could be bothered uh, racing against me. And uh, I know Andy Byer had, there was a horse called Temperance Hill who was, who was a decent enough three year old. And, and it was not a strong year in 1980 for three year olds. I, I think they had taken a lot of turns beating each other. Pro- probably not that dissimilar to, to this year. But um, I, I, I said t- in the piece I wrote, could you imagine if we were if we had a spectacular bid this year where Barkley Tag and Bob Baffert were trying to win the 3-year-old of the year and they wouldn't run in a two-horse race against them because they were afraid that they would get beat 20 lengths by him and and that would that would that would reflect poorly on on his championship uh, chances of being a three-year-old, and and just think about that. Here's a horse that's trying. Joe Canty was is trying to to lobby and and get Temperance Hill that that three-year-old uh, championship, and he's afraid of running against the horse because he might get beat twenty lengths by him, and that just kind of says um, something about the respect that the opposing trainers had for him. And and you know you look at the early season. Uh, in the Stroop series, where Flying Pastry, who's who's an exceptionally good horse, and if you take a, if you take away Spectacular Bid, and you put ones next to Flying Pastry's record, he he wins probably eighteen or nineteen races out of thirty, and and uh, they just had a hard time coming up with horses that that were willing to face him.
1: Exactly, and uh, and yeah, Flying Pacer was a great horse. Um, I think he won around you know, nine hundred thousand dollars in his entire career, but he was beaten by Spectacular Bid, I think, uh, seven times, you know, in his career. And if you if you take away Spectacular Bid, then you really do have an extremely talented horse who won a, a lot of races. Now, his Triple Crown record still wasn't great. Um, General Assembly, Golden Act, and of course, Coastal. Um, you know, really sh- shown better than than uh, than the, than he did in in those races. But um, yeah, Flying Pacer held his own in in a lot of races, and c- coming up to the Kentucky Derby, it was it was almost um, a draw in terms of, uh, records in terms of winnings. Uh, you know, they, they really thought that it was going to be, uh, an East versus West kind of, kind of matchup, you know, that you saw with you know, national and swaps.
0: Yeah. And it didn't, uh, it, you know, it, he, he was just, he was just not as good as this spectacular bit. And he wound up getting weight in all those races as well. Um, and that was the other thing that, that you when you look back at Spectacular Bid's four-year-old season in that he never carried less than 126, and he always gave weight. And a lot of times he gave significant weight. He gave 13, 14, 15 pounds, and it just didn't matter. And he was setting track records uh, under these imposts. And it wasn't like Shoemaker was, was really... Um, you know, all over them in these races as well, and and I'm not a I'm not a person who believes that jockeys urging horses is going to make them go significantly faster because most horses know what their job is, and the great ones certainly know what their job is, and and they go about as fast as they can go anyways. But um, you know, to, to set eight track records from five and a half furlongs to a mile and a quarter, that that's another just uh, kind of a phenomenal. Um, thing and, and you you have nowadays where a lot of the best horses never even run anything as short as five or five and a half furlongs. they start them out at longer distances and um I mean here is a horse that that set a track record at Pimlico going five and a half, and then uh-huh. a couple of years later he sets the world record um going a mile and a quarter a world record that, that still stands and, and still stands, pro- yeah. probably is is never going to be broken it it's just there's not that many mile and a quarter races left and Tracks just aren't as fast as as they used to be, and uh, it's probably that. That's probably a record that's gonna that's gonna last. Uh, There's a couple records in in horse racing that are probably always gonna last: Secretariat's Belmont, um, uh, Woody Stevens winning five Belmonts in a row, um, spectacular bid winning in one fifty-seven and four, uh, Uh which which are just always gonna be uh, always gonna be there. And um, it's so kind of ironic that the the pace setter in that, uh, in that race, the Strube stakes was a horse called relaunch who wound up being a, a really excellent sire. Um, and you still see, uh, you still see, um, relaunch in, in pedigrees today, even, um, you know, third, third, uh, fourth generation, of course, but, um, he he was just a, a really tough horse. I, I honestly I, I believe relaunch might have even been the, the damn sire of um of Ghost Zapper. Huh. I'm pretty sure he is. Um so it's like it it all kind of comes full circle when you you're trying to ta- talk about like great horses of uh of the past thirty, forty years and and that uh you know, relaunch like that that was that was something that I've kind of never seen before in a race either. And when you watch the race, the Strube series uh, finale, um, relaunch just kind of runs off with the jockey.
1: Oh, he had a, he had a good 10 length lead.
0: And, and And yeah, I mean, he went 22 flat to the quarter and then he went, which was a straightaway mostly. And then on the turn, he went 22 and two or 22 and three and, and a mile and a quarter race. And, and like, it wasn't as though he was being strangled but by certain it wasn't as though he was a rabbit and he was being asked he he did it on his own and um it it was kind of a a bizarre it was kind of a bizarre race all the way around but uh um you know the the flying pacer and 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 uh spectacular bid had to do a lot of running just to get into the race because he had gotten such a, a big lead but but the, the time—it's—it's it's just almost—it's—it's uh, it's like otherworldly, and then just something that uh, we'll, never, we'll never we'll never see again. And and he, you know, you watch the, the replay—the last fifty yards, he, he was just cruising. He he wasn't even under pressure at that point. It it was, uh, you know, Shoemaker had a had a had a had, had an easy way. Shoemaker was a really small guy, and. Pat Day was another rider, and and I think if you didn't see Shoemaker ride much, that Pat Day would probably be the the closest appropriation to him, and and that he was a small guy, and they just kind of perched up on the horses, and they tried to stay out of their way, and they didn't use them, they didn't overly, they didn't use more than than they had to, you know, they they were kind of soft hand riders, and uh, you know, a guy like Jerry Bailey and and, and Lafitte Pinkay, they're like they're strong riders. And it's not to say the other ones guys aren't strong, but but they, those guys used their physical strength to 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 will the horses home, and a shoemaker and, and a, a, a pate they kind of use um, use their their guile a little more. The fact that they were they were so small and, and they they could just kind of you know prop up on the horse and, and just let him do his thing, and and when you start to look at some of the imposts that, that spectacular Big carried you got to remember shoemaker weighed 105 106 pounds so (laughs) when he's carrying 132 (laughs) they're hauling uh you know 25 pounds of of lead out there with the saddle which is uh again that's something that doesn't happen anymore right
1: and uh and shoemaker rode rode him well the only one that uh Shoemaker admits he screwed up on was the the Jockey Club Gold Cup in 1979, where Spectacular Bid did lose to Affirmed, and uh, he just didn't get Spectacular Bid out to a good start. And everybody knows that if you give Affirmed the lead, uh, he's not going to give it up easily. And uh, by the, the first turn. Uh, he had a good two or three length lead on Spectacular Bid, who just kind of uh, lumbered out of the the gate, and and uh, Shoemaker said, "I only screwed up once on uh, on Spectacular Bid, and that was the the, the Gold Cup." So, um, you know, all in all, um, Bud Delp had a chance to to get Shoemaker early on, but as I said, there was a. A very close relationship between him and Ronnie Franklin, and uh, and the Meyerhoffs like Franklin as well, and for some reason they just kept him on there. Um, but uh, Shoemaker wrote him well; he wrote him perfectly uh, in 1980.
0: Yeah, he, he really didn't make any mistakes. And uh, you know, you know, when you go back to that Jockey Club Gold Cup, uh, I mean, if you think about the horse that affirmed was, I mean, an all-time great horse, who's who's greatest characteristic was this fight where he wouldn't let a horse go by and, and like you mentioned uh you know shoemaker saying uh, the fractions for that race were, were the half was 49 and three quarters was one thirteen and one which for a horse like affirmed it, it, it's like that's like walking that that's uh that's just a head start more or less and uh i mean certainly there was no disgrace in, in losing to affirmed and, and it wasn't as though um it wasn't as though he was he was soundly beaten. I mean, he he only got beat uh, three quarters of a length, and and yes, he was in receipt of, of five pounds. But this is affirmed, you know, on an easy lead. So it would have been interesting um, to see if he had had challenged him early and and uh, you know going after him a little bit. But uh, you know, obviously can't turn the can't turn the clock back. But uh, but uh, um, but you know, I I thought it was interesting that. Um, shoemaker's first mount, of uh, you know, first time he rode spectacular bid was, uh, in a, basically a layup race at Delaware an allowance race where, where he did set a track record and win by 17 lengths. But his next start was in the Marlboro cup and he, he, uh, carried 124 in, in that race and he showed speed he, he went, he went, you know, head and head for the lead and, um, you know, Decent fractions, uh, forty-seven and two, one-eleven, and, and then they really finished up super strong. I mean, it was an amazingly, you know, amazing, amazingly strong race. But after that, he never put him on the lead again. He was never on the lead again, and uh, um, I thought that was interesting when you look at his four-year-old year because uh, he had shown speed. He he won the Fountain of Youth, you know, wire to wire. He won the Flamingo wire to wire. He won the Bluegrass wire to wire. Um, so he, he had shown speed as a, as a young horse, uh, the champagne, he won wire to wire, uh, the world's playground, Atlantic city, he won, you know, wire to wire and shoemaker caught him, turned him into a horse that, that really would settle early in the race. And, and, uh, coming into the, the year starting out, uh, 1980 in the Malibu, a seven ace race, you know, turning back because he had been running a mile and a half mile and a quarter it made a lot of sense uh that he got a little bit outrun especially considering uh the fractions uh were you know were were super fast but um like delp said he he picked it up and, and i mean he, he ran his last quarter and and uh you know probably or his last eighth probably in sub 12 winning you know setting the track record in 120 but uh but that was the thing that, that kind of struck me about him as a four-year-old was that he he settled in the beginning of the race. He he never got real strong and and uh he, he came uh he made that same kind of move down the backside and it was almost like uh he was saying, you know, he, we're coming <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> you know, we're going to let you go off. We're gonna, you can you can have the lead. We don't really care how fast you go, but when we get to the three quarter pole, we're going to be right there, and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah,
1: yeah, and uh, I think that shows, of course, the 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 skill and the experience the shoemaker had it is finding the sweet spot of, of what spectacular bid like to do, um, you know, with with Ron Franklin. Uh, Franklin sometimes just let Bid do whatever he wanted to do and uh when Bid thought it was time to to go after the leaders, he went after the leaders and all he needed was a little bit of urging by Franklin, just a little chirp in the ear to, to get going. Um, but uh yeah, I really think that the shoemaker found uh, you know, some some magic formula was was a spectacular. Bit that, that worked to a T, and uh, knew knew when to to make his move, and uh, he made it uh, strongly, and and left everybody everybody in his wake.
0: Yeah, it, it was uh, he was really some some horse, and uh, I, I I enjoyed your book, and and uh, it, it was uh, a lot of it brought a lot to, uh, of things to light that I hadn't known, and and, um, at this point I think in in racings history that's how we're going to have to 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 bring the history to people is is through the written word and maybe through podcasts like this because there just isn't that much video out there and uh and the quality is is certainly it's it's hard, it's harder to watch some of these older videos when the quality just isn't isn't that great, and you know what we what we see these days with h d t v and um though, though I gotta admit that when they show races on like n b c and they start like going to the the uh the drone camera and all that uh, during the race is kind of distracting but um you know, you you're just trying to you're kind of figuring out where everybody is and how everyone's sitting and all of a sudden like you're looking down from you know and it's like this looks different, you know, (laughs) then they switch it, then they switch it back, (laughs) which makes it, which makes it a little difficult. Uh, you know, what we were talking the other day about, um, about the coverage of races, about how, um, things have, have changed so much in that, uh, there's so much more racing on television now than there used to be, uh, with the Naira show on, on Fox and, and, uh, you know, Churchill getting covered, um, the NBC doing, uh, you know, Royal Ascot, they, they do a lot more uh, mainstream coverage. And, of course, you know, TVG has is, is been covering racing for, you know, over 20 years now. But, um, you know, there's so much more coverage. And when you do wind up watching some of these older videos, and uh, especially uh, the races that were on uh, mainstream television, it's just, it's just uh, such a marked difference in how um, how horses were, 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 were talked about and, and, and how things were covered that, uh, compared to, compared to the way they are now. And I'm not saying one's better or the other, it just, uh, it's just so much different, which, and, and I guess it's probably, the, the, it probably, you could say the same about, about mainstream sports and, um, I mean, clearly the camera angles that we get in, in, the in, in football and, and, and baseball and, and So much different than, uh, you know, we used to get the baseball. We, it was covered by the, the camera in center field behind the pitcher and then, uh, you know, the one behind the plate that would kind of show the ball and play and that that was kind of it. But, uh, but racing is, uh, is, is still, um, it's still, you know, a little, the tradition is, is still there more, more than other sports and, uh, um, you know, I think that books like yours are really. Uh, it's important to, to have them because uh, it's easy for these horses to get lost, and and I mean, it, it's kind of, um, it's kind of depressing when I think. Source, you know, this four a year was forty years ago. It means I'm pretty old because <laughs> I remember it. <laughs> but um, it, it it is great that uh, that you know the details that that you give and and um. Uh, and I know jennifer i her book about Sir Barton, which oh spectacular which was, yeah, which was great. really great and and that's that's like a completely different era see for me that that is like um you know you learn so much about it because uh there's just not that much readily available information and yes, if you dig and you go to archives and and uh you know go to the Keeneland library or uh you know. <laughs> go to the attic and so, <laughs> somewhere and pull the cobwebs off and uh you know kind of go back through the newspaper articles that that were written um you can find it certainly but for a regular normal person to to try to find that kind of stuff out is is really it's 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 extremely difficult and and I think that there's a lot of history out there that that really still has to be to be uh to be brought to light and and I think horses. Like spectacular bid need to be um, need to have a focus on them at some point, and the book like you you wrote is something that the modern fan can read and he can get a little bit or he or she can get a little bit of uh, of better context of how things used to be. And when people like me sound like curmudgeons because we're like yeah it was always better back in the old days, they understand why we're saying that. And uh, a couple of weeks ago a guy on Twitter wrote something about Swiss skydiver, who's had a tremendous season, tremendous, uh, especially in the context of how horses are raced. And I commend the connections. I commend the, the trainer. Uh, the horse itself just has has been spectacular, he's gone everywhere he's run all over the place and, and is still going strong at this time of the year. But the person said something to the effect of, is this the greatest, you know, year by a three year old Philly ever. And, I Almost fell out of my chair because I'm thinking, well, if it ever started like eight <laughs> years ago, maybe, but you know, Rachel Alexandra had a pretty good three year old season. You know, oh, yeah, <laughs> she did kind of win a triple crown race and she did win the Kentucky Oaks by 20, and, and you know, she did beat the boys in the Woodwards, so that one's be pretty tough to beat. And, and if you go back far enough, I mean, you look at Lady Secret's three year old year, and um, and you know what happened in Lady Secret's three year old year. She would have won Horse of the Year in 1985, except her stablemate beat her in the Distaff, Life's Magic, who was a great horse. But I think this this time, this day and age, knowing that Lady Secret would be winning would be the Horse of the Year. Probably depending on how things worked out at the Breeders' Cup, I think Wayne Lucas might have run Life's Magic in the in, in the Classic, and and kind of cleared the way for her. And, oh he was certainly not afraid of running against the boys. Yeah that's for sure. So I mean these days people are a little more cognizant about, about uh bloodstock values and and about uh awards and and things like that and um and I, I was thinking about that the other day and I gotta ask Wayne and it probably won't tell the truth but uh gotta ask him, you know, had you thought about like you know, if she won the if she won the distaff because she had a really a spectacular year in 1985. Lady Secret started the year not really that high on the list in in the Lucas barn, and he was running at Bay Meadows and in some you know non graded stakes, and and then she winds up you know like picking up the pace and started winning everywhere. Then she wins the test and she wins the Alabama. And then, she, you know, she, she's going all over. She's winning, you know, she's beating everybody. And, and then, as, uh, she wound up with 10 wins out of 17 starts. And then he backed off her uh, as a four-year-old. He only ran her 15 times as a four-year-old and she won 10 and she won the, uh, I think she won the Whitney. Um, and she wound up being horse of the year as a, uh, as a four-year-old. But, um, yeah, sometimes, uh, I think that, It's great because we have that context in other sports. Um, You talk about football, right? You you say all 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 time great quarterbacks. Um, You know Tom Brady certainly, Peyton Manning certainly, but you know you got you got to put Joe Montana in there. Um, (laughs) It was a funny thing a couple weeks ago on Monday night game. I believe it was the Monday night game. The game was from was, was being aired in Cleveland and there was a quarterback that played for the whatever the Cleveland team was back in in the 40s and 50s uh, a guy named Otto Graham was considered like one of the first great passers sure um, and it yeah. was a totally different game obviously and and the announcer said, you know, Otto Graham doesn't get brought up that much when people talk about the great, you know, quarterbacks of all time. And and I, my first thought was like, yeah, because there's nobody alive that actually saw him play. <laughs> you know, he played <laughs> seventy years ago. So it wasn't like every game was on television. But that that's kind of a uh, um you know you, you have these these things that in racing people can say, well, you know, I heard citation was a great horse, but what did he do? Uh, I think he won the triple crown. Uh, I'm not sure what else he did. You know, like, yeah, he, he went, he, he won like every race for like two years. But, um, that's, that's the thing that, uh, I try to bring to this podcast, um, at least once a month where we talk about, uh, and, and going forward, I really want to, want to do that. And I, I think the next one that we talk about is going to be lore. Um, and the one great thing about lore is that, uh, everybody that trained him and, the Wrote him is still alive, so uh, that that that's kind of a a problem when you get back going a little too far. That uh, it's it's hard to get people like you know for for um a horse like Spectacular Bid. Obviously, his trainer's passed away, and you know Billy Shoemaker passed away a long time ago, and Ronnie Franklin's passed away, and and George Velasquez has not passed away but he might not want to talk about him because since he gotten since he lost yeah. him now
1: I I actually met George and uh didn't bring it up I I just didn't think that uh that he'd have anything really nice to say about
0: it Yeah you know it's like it's a business but it's still I mean that's an opportunity that he's probably really kicking himself about and and it might not have mattered I mean you know you ride a race it, it doesn't always work out but uh George George is a great guy he, he really is and uh but that 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 is an issue that we do kind of run into sometimes when we go back a little too far with some of these horses in that uh in that we don't have the you know the people that the, they're just not around anymore and um that 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 makes it a little more difficult because uh, it
1: does it, it gets a, it, it doesn't bring you the the color the the actual being there that uh that you get with with uh more current horses and um but you know like as you said, these are stories that need to be told. there are you know just hundreds of stories out there of of uh, you know just amazing. Uh, results, amazing uh, athletic prowess that, uh, that these horses exhibited. And um, I mean, you look at Citation, but then you look at Noor and, and how he, he beat Citation, and uh, yet no one knows who Noor really is. Um, that's another story and uh you look at world away and count fleet Assault, you know all in, in the same decade winning triple crowns uh, a lot of people just either don't realize that or forgot that it happened and uh these are feats that you know may never happen again and uh it's it's up to, to people like Jennifer Kelly and Jamie Nicholson and Milt Toby to to uh to capture these moments uh in books and and let us know exactly what happened, and, and you know how fortunate we are to have something that that tells us uh, how truly great these horses were.
0: You know, there, there's so many great stories that that are kind of um, kind of lost a little bit. There was there was a horse um, in 1984, and he came over from Argentina, and He had won everything in Argentina. I mean, he was like the horse there. And he he was literally unchallenged. He he just crushed all the races. His name was Matt Boy. And he showed up um, with his connections from Argentina, including his jockey. He showed up at um, Hialeah in the Widener, which at the time, the Widener handicap was a grade one race. And was um, the there was there was two really premier um, graded grade one races for older horses on the dirt uh, in Florida in in the winter season. The Widener was one, and the Gulfstream Park Handicap was the other one. And this horse came to America. It ran in the Hialeah, uh, ran at Hialeah in the Widener, and absolutely crushed the best horses that we had on the East coast just dominated them one by 10, 11 lengths. He came back a month and a month and a half later in the Gulfstream park handicap. And he did the same thing. Just, just destroyed them. I mean, like left them Mm. for, you know, (laughs) it it was, it was like a man among boys. (laughs) And there's all these, these there's been all these, these stories and, and I don't speak good enough Spanish and I can't read it good enough to, to really like uh, uncover it because I wasn't there. I was still too young. I was I was not old enough to, to be there. But um, he wound up running in a turf race um, and at Gulfstream, the Pan American, and supposedly he had had a tendon injury. And it, the trainer ran him anyways, and he ran up the track, and and that was it. He was never, you know, he never raced again, and he wound up going back down to South America and, and becoming a, a pretty decent stallion. But it was just one of these things where um, f- this horse just appeared out of nowhere, and he he just just you know beat the crap out of the best horses in Florida, and you know twice, and then the next thing you know he's gone, and it, it was just. Uh, It it was always one of those things. It was a horse named slew, the dragon who raced in New York, who was a turf horse right, right around that same time. And he was a horse. He had actually set the track record at aqueduct for a mile and, um, an eighth winning a stake the day before the aqueduct breeders cup. And that, that, that race, uh, excuse me, that, that, um, that race, uh, or excuse me, track record stood for a long time, and he was a really well-bred horse. He he, he was by uh, Seattle Slew, uh, out of a really top mare, and he was owned by the same people that owned Seattle Slew. So it wasn't like he was, uh, you know, some mystery horse that came out of um, came out of nowhere. But he had run in a couple dirt races, and this was before there was many. Turf maidens or turf allowance races, even there were some turf allowance races, but it wasn't like it is now. And he he broke his maiden at Saratoga uh, as a three year old on the turf. Um, and he just um he he just wound up going on this streak. He he, uh, like I said, he broke his maiden in Saratoga, he went to Belmont, he won an allowance race easy. Two weeks later, ran in another allowance race, won another allowance race easy. Ran in a Handicap at Belmont. There was his third race in a row. Went easy. Runs up running against uh, older horses going a mile three and three-eighths in the Rutgers Handicap, which was a grade two at the medal, and he, and he got beat. Uh, he came back off that race and ran into Lashkari Stakes, which was, again, the day before the Breeders' Cup, and set the track record. Um, he Two weeks later, after that race, he went to Hollywood Park. He won the grade one Hollywood Derby and he got hurt and he never raced again and he just uh he, he went to stud and just i think he actually wound up going to stud in uh i think he wound up going to japan and i don't think he had a whole lot of success but here was a horse that that nowadays um would have been considered like a huge star because he, he was a grade one winner he, he was Undefeated except for the one, you know, uh, on the turf except for the the first time against the, uh, you know, tough stake horses going a mile and three eighths, which was maybe a little bit further than he wanted to go, but like no one even no one even remembers a horse like that now, and I mean he was a really really excellent horse, and uh, there's so many cases like that, so many um, horses that uh, stories that that have kind of uh, you know gone by the wayside, and uh, no, those are the things that uh, I think people are interested in and i think a lot of times i don't know that people know that they're interested in things until they're, they hear about them and then they're like wow i, I never knew that or I, I never knew you know this and and that's the one great thing about horse racing is that uh there's so many of those stories yet to be uncovered not just ones that are that are happening now um but there's so many of them that uh that still exist, and, and, uh, you know, so many stories of horses overcoming things, uh, um, you know, you heard the, the Sunday silence, uh, um, gotten a, a car wreck, uh, you know, a truck, a uh, van accident is a baby, and winds up, you know, becoming, a um, uh, uh-huh. you know, who he was, horse of the year, and, and, uh, you know, greatest turf, uh, greatest stallion influence, uh, from Japan, uh, pretty much ever, and, I mean, here, here's a horse that uh, you know no one really kind of wanted as a as a young horse, and uh, he turns in, into this you know this star horse, and and I think one of the things that was kind of downplayed a little bit when you look at Sunday Silence and Easy Goer, the Easy Goer was kind of the blue blood horse trained by the you know the trainer of the um, you know the blue blood people, and and Arthur Hancock was. Um, was kind of a little more of an outcast, and, and, uh, you know, of course, certainly Charlie Whittingham had all the the, the respect and credentials in the world. But, um, you know, it was a great rivalry, but those horses both kind of fizzled out at four, and that's kind of forgotten. And and I was talking earlier uh, in the year, I had Jose Santos on, and he rode a horse named Criminal Type in 1990, who was Horse of the Year who was actually the only horse to ever beat Seattle Slew and easy goer. And he beat them both uh, as as a four-year-old and uh, on his way to being horse of the year. And he, he was an exceptionally good horse. And it just, you never, you would ask somebody about those three horses and, People wouldn't believe who, who he beat. Who he beat? Both of those horses? Not that that, that, that that didn't happen. Yeah, and not only did it happen, he beat him. He 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 beat the crap out of him. And and uh, he, he was you know he won the Pimlico Special. He he won the Californian. He won a bunch of you know big races. And I remember asking Jose. And Jose was like, man, he was a really great. He was one of the best horses I ever rode. And he goes, nowadays nobody even knows who he is. And uh, he he didn't have a whole lot of success at stud, and I think that I think that plays a part in it. I really do think that plays a part in it because Unbridled Song was a good horse, but because he was a really good stallion, I think that the name lives on um, because of because of, of the prowess as as a stallion. And uh, I think I think it hurt Affirmed some because I think Affirmed um, when he's compared, he, you, you think of Affirmed, you compare him to Seattle Slough. And, you know, they were back-to-back years. And um, Affirmed wasn't the, you know, certainly Seattle Slough was a, a transcendent uh, talent at, at Stud where Affirmed really was kind of a, a a decent stallion, but he never really had, you know, he never had nearly the success that Seattle Slough had. And even Secretariat, um, who who kind of, Secretary, it's like a Michael Jordan type, where we forget about all the bad games, and we don't think about like the losses, and we don't think about the fact that he really wasn't a good stallion. He wasn't. A, he was actually a, a, a tremendous broodmare stallion. He, he his brood his, his his mares produced amazingly, and you could make a case that he's one of the all time great broodmare sires. But he's considered like a busted stallion because he never really got a lot of colts that did a lot, and, and that kind of matters. But um, it just goes to show you, though, that that there are factors, and I mean, who who was a better horse in the in the mid to late eighties? than Ali Sheba? I mean, I was never a big fan of Ali Sheba's. I don't know why. I mean, maybe because I never. Every time I bet on him, he lost. And every time I bet against him, he won. But I mean, he was a really, <laughs> really good horse. He was a tremendous horse. Top, you know, really, really a great horse, and and he just was a terrible stallion. Just a terrible stallion. And, and there's there's not much rhyme or reason to why that happens. Uh, Coronado's Quest was a really well-bred horse. that was a, was a good horse. He was a little bit nuts. Uh, I remember one day being at the old Gulfstream Park, and uh, he got loose in the saddle and paddock, and he was literally running around loose. Um, and uh, we weren't sure they were going to catch him. But, um, you know, he, he just turned out to be a, a bad stallion, and, and that's kind of, unfortunately, the fate, For spectacular bid, and that he just, um, he just never seemed to reproduce anything close to himself in in the stallion shed.
1: Yeah, and I I, I mentioned that in, in the book, that it was kind of like lightning in a bottle, where his his dam raced at county fairs, um, set a track record there, but still did not have a, a, a magnificent career. Of course, his, his father was, was famous, bold bidder, um, and came from the bold ruler line. Um, but, you know, that was one reason for his $37,000 price tag, was that people weren't really that impressed with his, his bloodlines, and yet he did what he did and uh, was syndicated for millions of dollars. And uh, you're right, when it came down to him being a, a good stallion, it just didn't happen. And uh, it was just a case where all the genes came together at the right time, at the right place, and um, after that, there was there was really not much of anything.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's very odd how... how... I mean, when you really look back at it, and, and this was when I, I lived in Kentucky for about ten years, and I learned a lot about about breeding and about um, uh, about a lot of things that when you're on the racetrack, just on the racetrack, you, you don't kind of recognize. But I learned a lot about confirmation, about trying to pair um, mares of certain size to stallions of certain size, and, and just things like that. And um, one of the things that that uh, a good friend of mine pumped into my head um, right from the beginning was, listen, 90% of stallions fail. Because it might be 95 considering what you just determine is success, but most of them fail. And a lot of times the ones you really think are not going to fail are the ones that fail spectacularly. And the ones that you really hadn't thought that much of. You look up and, and, and they're they're first on, on the, the, the freshman uh you know sire list. They've got you know fourteen winners and five stake winners and, and you're like I I gave up a you know chance to buy a, a share in that horse. And true story, I, I had a chance to buy a share of Tappet uh for I believe like forty thousand. $40,000, 45 something, 35 in that range and of course I didn't have any money so it, it didn't matter and it was really offered to me as something that I would, you know, give to one of my clients and of course had we known that he would wind up standing for 3 400,000 uh I would have begged borrowed and stole to, to get the to get involved right. in that but uh you know there you that's know, how it goes at the time if if uh if I had told someone uh, yeah I I just you know sold a bunch of uh, of uh, my, my, uh, whatever I had that was worth anything to, to buy a share in a, a stallion that raced six times, they would have like thought I was nuts. But, uh, as it turns out, it would have been a good investment, but like you said, 90% of them don't make it. And, and, uh, you know, even the the great ones, um, you know, some of the greatest horses, uh, of our, of our generation just did not become top stallions. And it's. uh, you know, you look at Into Mischief. is now he's like the top dog and Into Mischief was not a great horse. <laughs> you know, his race <laughs> record was right. was OK. He was a pretty good horse, but uh, you couldn't have seen him coming. It, it, it's uh, Stormcat. You know, he was a good horse, but you couldn't have seen him coming the way the way he, you know, ter- what, what he turned out to be. Um, you go back to Mr. Prospector. And this was when you know Mr. Prospector, he was so good as a stallion that he overcame every single um, uh, knock against him. That he was just a six furlong horse. That he wasn't a sound horse. That he was a Florida bred. That uh, you know a- every single um, knock that that uh, the Kentucky Blue Bloods had against him, it just didn't matter because he just had so many good horses and so many steak horses year after year that eventually they just adopted him, And then, I mean, he wound up becoming, of course, a, a legendary stallion where, uh, one year, I think maybe 2015, every single Kentucky Derby runner, traced back to mr prospector every single one
1: yeah it's hard to find a horse that doesn't have mr prospector in his, in his
0: pedigree and, and you think about it like in the early 70s and mr prospector was was a sprinter and he was not even considered uh kentucky material and this was when florida breeding was in its infancy the florida breeding program uh Mr. Dreyfus, who who uh, Alan Jerkins worked for for 40 years at Hobo Farm, was was one of the <clears throat> the first big operations to to kind of just solely base in Florida, and uh, it grew uh, it grew pretty quick. And then Mockingbird Farm, uh, Harry Montgomery, wound up being uh, leading si- le leading breeder in the country. He, he bred a he would breed 400 mares a year. It was uh, crazy, but um and and, and sadly it, it's kind of gone the back the other way with Florida, in that. Uh, they they hit the peak um probably in the nineties and um now now they're they're back uh, the numbers are, are not nearly what they were. Um but it's uh a lot of, Like Cantharos is another horse who who started down here uh in Florida and, and wound up, you know, doing so well that uh that Hillendale bought him and brought him to Kentucky where where he continues to do well. And um it's just, you know, Cantharos is another horse. Like w- you know, like who who saw him becoming the sire he did who saw city zip becoming the sire he was um he's a mm-hmm. small crooked sprinter and he wound up being a really strong middle distance turf influence <laughs> it just as it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't always fit the bill but uh you know Mr Prospector is probably the greatest example of a horse that uh um shows that that what your race record was what you did as, as a stallion um, I mean, what your pedigree is sometimes it just doesn't matter. And for whatever reason, he just had that genetic magic and, and certainly bold bitter had the genetic magic in creating spectacular bid, but he just, it didn't get passed on.
1: Yeah. And you know, he, he, spectacular bid actually wound up in, uh, Milford farm in, uh, near Unadilla, New York, standing for about $3,500, and uh had a chance to go up there and visit his grave and it's you know an a it's, it's very well done grave concrete rocks uh a gravestone, but you know it's it's in the middle of nowhere and uh and for for a horse again that was that revered at the time um you know to know that he was standing for thirty five hundred dollars in upstate new york um it was just um un- unbelievable that, that that
0: would happen yeah no no one in, in 1980 could have imagined uh, could have imagined that i'm sure i'm sure i'm sure when he was trotting around the track in the woodward by himself no one would have thought hey he's going to wind up at milford Farm standing for a ham sandwich but but that's yeah. that's that's the that's the The randomness of the business and and what keeps people's dreams alive because it's not, you you can't just corner the market and just buy up all the the good ones and they come from anywhere. And, and, uh, you know, spectacular bid came from humble beginnings and and wound up at the very, very, very top of the heap. I appreciate your time and joining us today. And uh, your book is out. Uh, We can get that at uh, Amazon. Is that right?
1: Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, you can order it from your local bookstore as well. Um, yeah, anywhere, anywhere books are sold, pretty much you
0: can get it. Yeah, I know my dad picked it up. I think at the uh, the Racing Museum and Hall of Fame in Saratoga, they have a bookstore there. Yeah, um, but uh, that that was uh, it was uh, I, I I did read the book and it was was uh, it was really well done and, and like I said, I learned a lot about Spectacular Bit, who was a horse I always held in high esteem before and after reading the book it just uh it brought more out and uh you know some some of the things kind of made a little more sense at, at this point and uh he was uh i i will stand and argue with anybody for the last 40 years there's there has not been a better horse than him period and that's that's all there is to it i'll agree with you absolutely <laughs> all right peter thank you i really appreciate your time today thank you
1: thank
0: you good talking to you you got it Bye bye Thank That's Peter Lee. Peter Lee wrote uh, a really, really excellent book, Spectacular Bid, The Last Super Horse of the 20th Century. It's the 40th anniversary of Spectacular Bid's amazing four-year-old campaign where he just dominated the entire year, set four track records, and uh, had the ultimate show of respect in the 1980 Woodward where no one else... Thought that it was worth running against him, even for second money, and he ran in the last uh, the last walkover in a major race in this country was spectacular bids nineteen eighty walk uh, Woodward, which was forty years ago, which makes me feel old.